This episode of Pharmacy to Dose is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Chiesi is a family-owned, research-focused pharmaceutical company and as a sustainable company accredited with both a B Corp and Benefit Corporation status, Chiesi is making global changes that benefit patients, providers, and healthcare organizations with forward-looking and impactful initiatives. Chiesi appreciates the integral role that clinical pharmacists play in patient care and are proud to support this community. To learn more, visit chiesi.pharmacytodose.com. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Day one of SCCM is in the books. Um, Great start to Congress. Recording this about 7 p.m. Phoenix time and what a day. So for today's episode, give a little bit of recap from Sunday, January 21st. Um, kind of give a few thoughts. And then Blake Robbins joins me to highlight his star research presentation, Standard versus Augmented Corticosteroid Dosing in Mechanically Ventilated Patients Due to COVID-19, featuring so many other pharmacists, friend of the pot, co-authors. Such a great study idea. And keep in mind, FYI, the star research presentations are as available as abstracts in critical care medicine, that that January online-only supplement. Then the episode ends with Judy Jacoby, critical care icon and senior author on the glycemic control in the ICU guidelines. And she joins me to talk about these guidelines, answer some questions, and hopefully give some insight and a behind-the-scenes look into these guidelines, their recommendations, and the process itself. And again, these full guidelines and executive summary are also available in critical care medicine, published online ahead of print. So uh, what a Sunday fun day. So let's keep it going. So the night of the CPP reception is typically a great time, and this was no exception. Um, Anthony and I will talk more about the reception and such on the larger recap, so stay tuned for that. So a little bit about about the day, things we saw, things like that. So my my day started off uh, my morning with a, a roundtable session. So I was moderating on the role of podcasting in professional education. And one person was at my table. You know, in, when you're in these roundtables, you know you have one of the less popular ones when other groups start stealing chairs from your table. It's like, oh, you guys definitely aren't using this. We'll take this. Now, um, I'm not telling you all this. It's like a woe is me pity. It's just a, 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 the beginning of the story. So it turns out that that person was Edward Chin, a.k.a. Eddie, from Joanna Stallings and I's discussion from the Acord Rapid Reaction uh, episode. He's um, one of the physicians uh, from Vanderbilt, and he was the physician lead author on the same Acorn study. So he also hosts a podcast called ICU Ed and Todd Cast. Um, small, small world, very fun, um, but just a little, little update as to what was happening there. So then 
we also kind of went around the conference after that, trying to see all the pharmacist speakers. So I had mentioned that uh, 1030 was a, was a hot time on Sunday, and it definitely was. I mean, Patrick V. Ruszewski, Bill Peppard, Matt Dupree, John Allen, all presenting in this hour time block. Now, I didn't get a chance to see everyone. My apologies. Um, Patrick definitely did a great job in the big ballroom. Um, and then John Allen made reviewing antifungal treatment fun, which I think is actually a tad challenging. So shout out to John. That was awesome. Um, and there were some interesting late-breaking studies. I think the one that we'll probably hear the most about is a study called Profivap, which if we're just taking study acronyms alone, that's a great acronym. Um, we'll... <laughs> Acronyms will come back later in the episode as, as I was talking to Blake, but um, this looked at a single dose of ceftriaxone to help prevent VAP in essentially TBI patients or acute brain injured patients. Published in Lancet Respiratory Medicine, I'll have a link to that in the episode description, but I mean, the multi-center study it had impressive results, and it showed that the, the one dose of ceftriaxone reduced VAP incidence from 32% to 14%, so... That collective thing you heard was the ID community groaning with the results of that study. Um, but I think more to come. Definitely will be more discussion diving into some of this here. Now, we waited all day for Sunday night, and the session on the new SCCM guidelines was absolutely great. So it featured Sid Padamwala uh, discussing the RSI guidelines and specifically those questions that focused on pharmacotherapy. Uh, and then Judy Jacoby uh, discussed the adult portion of the glycemic control guidelines. Uh, hearing her talk about the process and all that went into it, it is so good. Definitely don't miss our discussion towards the end of this episode. Uh, and also shout out to Michael Ciramatros, who had the suit of the day, crushed it on stage representing that glycemic control guideline panel. Uh, SCCM always has some of the best clinical content. The speakers have all been outstanding. Such a, an absolute great start to the conference. One last kind of random thought. Uh, the line to check into the conference this morning was long enough that you'd confuse it for the bathroom line at a concert. It was wild. Waiting 10, 15, 20 minutes to, to get to, to get a badge. I don't know what happened. People were worried we were, they were going to be missing their own sessions. All these things. So, if you need to get a badge in the morning, give yourself just a little extra time. It sounds like there were a few people that uh, took a little break from the conference to watch some afternoon football. Uh, so, hopefully this little mini review keeps everyone in the loop. Uh, and then again, big special shout out to everyone that has said hello. Most people from recognizing my voice and things. Uh, it absolutely makes my day. If you see me, come find me, say hi. We've got some, got some swag while it lasts that I'll be able to, uh, to give you for saying hi. So, so come on over. Love talking to friends of the pod. Now shifting gears, let's get into our discussion with star researcher Blake Robbins. All right, and we are coming to you live from Phoenix, Arizona, at the SECM conference. We're literally in a hallway with our equipment on a chair. Next to me is star research presenter, Blake Robbins. Now, Blake's an emergency medicine pharmacist at the University of Kentucky, and he's going to talk to us about his multi-center study, standard versus augmented corticosteroid dosing in mechanically ventilated patients due to COVID-19. So, Blake, how are you? Good. How are you, Nick? 
I'm doing great. Glad you could uh, join us. Tell us, tell, tell us a little bit more before I ask you a couple of questions. Tell me a little yeah. bit more about the, uh, about the study. Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me on the pod. Big fan. Uh, fanboying here just to have the opportunity <laughs> to talk to you about this. Um, so, yeah, this study was, is interesting. Um, when I was a PGY1 uh, pharmacy resident, obviously I'm a COVID resident. I'll, I'll self-proclaim myself as. And um, as things were going on in the wild west of the ICUs, especially with our, our COVID ARDS patient population, um, we were seeing just wild variations in practice in steroid dosing. Um, you know, I came to my preceptors, and I'm seeing patients originally on lower doses, and then we'd have a change in an attending who thought that a higher dose would be better. Then, like, the next week, the same patient would be switched back. And from a learning standpoint, I was like, well, what are we doing, and what's the right way to go about this? Um, and unfortunately, no one knew, and no one had the answer to our question. <laughs> That's the thing. No one knew. Yep. Yep. So why not study it, right? So this was a great opportunity um, to not only learn about research, but to answer a common clinical question that was happening on rounds every single day. You know, we had two trials um, that were somewhat conflicting in their in their recommendations. Um, so we had, you know, the, the recovery data that had six milligrams that included a bunch of mechanically ventilated patients and had, you know, strong outcome data there. And then we also had the DEXA-ARDS uh, study that did not include COVID patients. as pre-COVID-19, but had higher doses of dexamethasone that they were utilizing and also showed, like, mortality benefits. And so I think we were kind of cherry-picking what study we really wanted to go with for the day or at least for the week for me. Definitely. Um, and so we set out to answer that question. So, yeah, we, um, we were fortunate enough to design it um, as a multi-centered study. So we kind of went big. We had a lot of time to do it, and obviously this was happening throughout the country. Um, we were able to enroll 30 centers, which was great. Um, and of course, we can talk about the challenges, but also the major benefits to having that much data and the resources of all of these pharmacists and providers throughout the country um, contributing to a single question, which was awesome. Um, but what we found was we basically enrolled patients that had um, COVID-19-related mechanical ventilation. Um, so trying to look at ARDS, but from a more retrospective um, way of doing it. So not able to really employ like the Berlin criteria necessarily, but just looking overall at the general patient population. Um, we looked at patients that had received uh, corticosteroids within a defined window. So making sure that we were getting all of the outliers out, the confounders out. So they had to be within a a succinct time window of mechanical ventilation initiation. Um, and then we looked at ventilator-free days as our primary outcome. So those that aren't aware, it's a combination of days off the ventilator, but also mortality. So if you die, you actually get zero ventilator-free days. Um, so it's a nice composite outcome that a lot of these trials are starting to look at. Um, we were fortunate to enroll 1,405 patients um, after exclusions. Um, so those that were excluded, I should say, uh, were patients that... Um, required ECMO support, those that received corticosteroids outside of that pre-specified time window, um, and those were the majority of our excluded patients. Um, like I said, 1,405 patients were included. Um, 373 had an augmented dose, so those that were greater than 6 milligrams, so greater than that recovery dosing of, of uh, dexamethasone or corticosteroid equivalent. And then we had 1,032 patients, so 73% of our patients receiving what we define as a standard dose regimen. Um, we looked at a variety of things. Like I said, ventilator-free days was our biggest primary outcome. Um, we did not see any difference in that. So that being said, um, there's, no, there's no difference in, in increasing your steroid dose. Less is, is okay. We don't need to slam them with, you know, there's the old adage of methylpred if you if – you, if you give a darn, give a gram, I, I need to edit that out for like, you know, <laughs> but 
<laughs> so that doesn't always just in your apply. mind replace darn with the appropriate correct. word. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So yeah. Um, so that old adage, right, doesn't always make sense. Um, we lead to maybe potentially adverse effects. So we also looked at that. Um, like I said, no difference in ventilator-free days when escalating those steroid doses. And we actually saw a pretty significant trend towards um, decreased ventilator-free days, um, so worse outcomes uh, in the higher dosing. So it wasn't statistically significant. Our p-value was like 0.051 whenever we looked at like all of the different um, variables and tried to adjust for all of the things that we could. Um, but still strong evidence to say that less is okay. Um, in terms of secondary outcomes, we also looked at a variety of safety uh, measures. So things you commonly think about, hyperglycemia, GI bleeds, um, and delirium. Interestingly, uh, when we did not adjust for it, there were no differences in those. Uh, when we did adjust for it, we actually saw an increase in GI hemorrhage with the lower dose regimen, which is not something that we would think about um, but we didn't collect all of that data on like VTE prophylaxis, stress also uh, stress risk factors for mucosal disease. So interesting that we saw that. Um, not something that we necessarily expected. But well, what a what an awesome study. I mean, this is you're the you're the uh, first author, but it's you know a who's who of names in the in the pharmacy world of this. So um, talk about leading the way. So this is awesome. Now I think first things first, you kind of hinted at it. Talk a little bit about the challenges of this multi-center research. You know challenges, but then also things that you know were benefits compared to doing like our classic single center. Yeah, I think when we you know when I look around these poster sessions, I see. Um, a lot of great research being done, but I, I think at times we're asking the same question for 10 different research projects. Um, and while the data is great, I think we can strengthen it, especially when we're thinking about retrospective studies. How do we strengthen the quality of data? How do we get to these like thousand patient level of, uh, um, types of, of studies? And that's the benefit of it, right? Like putting all of our minds together. I had a steering committee of, of wonderful individuals from um, kind of across the country. Um, so we try to keep it small because when you have 20 different idea generators, that can be a little challenging. Yeah, so too I guess, many cooks, yeah. Yeah, like maybe challenge number one. But I think um, we were all unified in our approach, and I got a lot of great insight because they were very experienced researchers as well. So obviously gaining their experience as you, as you expand to a multi-center project um, of course, I opened it up to the 30 centers as well whenever we were developing the protocol for their input, but it was really guided by a core of, you know, experts that I really trusted and my, uh, my mentor, Melissa Baston, also uh, really trusted. And so they were able to really mentor me throughout like a multi-center project. Um, challenges, timeline. So, you know, I set out to do this project. Actually, I was fortunate to early commit and I started this around February of my PGY-1 year. So I was kind of ahead of the maybe residency research timeline at like the time. Like six months ahead, just to like yeah. put that actually in perspective. Because even though you start residency in July, you're not submitting it to the IRB in July unless you are the most on it, right? Like you have delays. So you, you doing it in February, like there's no way you could have done it without that, right? Correct. And unfortunately too, I mean, this expanded across my PGY-2 and into like my first year of, of clinical practice. So... You know, things that we hit road bumps on or roadblocks on were IRB approval. So all 30 sites needed their own IRB. Um, we had an overall IRB, a master IRB, and we worked very closely with our contracts team. So I think that's another, like, learning curve that I had to kind of be aware of as we have, we were, we were fortunate to have contract coordinators at UK, lawyers that develop these contracts and then work with 
the other institutions to make sure that the verbiage is all okay. We're sharing their institution's data, which a lot of them are you know, uncomfortable with. So we have to make sure that we're protecting everything for all 30 centers in a way that they felt most appropriate. I never even, there's no way, have you ever interacted with them before? Like, thankfully they were there because I didn't even know that was a thing. Yep, <laughs> I know. They just, they're the silent heroes of maybe multi-center research because the amount of emails, the amount of coordination that they went through with the various centers. I mean, I had my pharmacist or provider point of contact for sure, but they were really behind the scenes working with lawyers, the legal team, to make sure that all of the data was handled appropriately. Yeah. Um, and that took time. So, I mean, up to a year sometimes to actually sign a contract, um, depending on the institution, just because COVID was also backlogging everything. Of course, it was a slow time for everyone's research, but also just the fact that we had to cross all of our I's and dot all of our, nope, cross all of our T's and dot all of our I's. What, uh, what are the origins of this study? You know, you mentioned, and all of us who were working can completely agree, it was the wild, wild west. Everything, you know, felt like, everyone was doing something a little different. So like, how did, how did it come from an idea to the star research abstract we're looking at now? Yeah, I think number one, a lot of mentorship. So I think, uh, you know, having a great team, like I said, to um, kind of work with me on my original idea, I think the willingness to do a multi-center research project and understand kind of what goes into that communication um, working through a lot of, of institutional barriers as well, just not, you know, we, you have your own institutional barriers whenever you're doing IRB approval, getting that going. So it's much, I think, more challenging whenever you have 30 people looking at your IRB and making sure that they're okay with that. So, um, again, a lot of mentorship, um, determination, uh, data cleaning. So, unfortunately, you know, I guess my, my recommendation to anyone making a multi-center survey or any kind of retrospective data collection tool is make it as specific as possible um, because there's even variations in the way they display labs and at different institutions, there's different practice styles, obviously. And so I didn't even, as, as much as I tried to plan and make it as uh, uniform as possible, I was very surprised at the differences in um, kind of the way that it was reported. And so unfortunately, there was probably 100 plus hours of, of data, of data cleaning, recontacting those individuals to ask clarifying questions um, in order to make sure that that one kilo patient, right, was appropriately identified or, you know, the labs were actually in whatever standard um, units that we use at UK. We also had a multi-center, or we had a a Saudi Arabia hospital too. So they have variations in the way they they display their labs too. So learn a lot about um, how to make it as maybe airproof up front and put in a lot of that work in the front end. Again, we tried to do that so that we didn't have to do a lot of the back end cleaning, but Nevertheless, you don't think about everything. And so I learned yeah. a lot in that, in that process too. So, Any other, you know, you mentioned the, the GI bleeding with the lower dose. Any other surprising, like, outcomes or anything that you, when you all kind of looked at it, was like, hmm. I think we, I think it was pretty telling still, like, I guess I should say, I was surprised at the variation still that we were seeing. Like, we collected a lot of other outcome data, or I should just say characteristics, so agents that were utilized. Again, you know, you would think that the country at least had somewhat of a unified approach to managing, like, COVID ARDS, depending on what medical center you're in, but it really wasn't the case. I mean, we had some centers using exclusively methylprednisolone. We had some centers exclusively using dexamethasone. 
we had some centers employing hydrocortisone still for like ARDS. So there, yeah. there was still a lot of variation. And, and I expected that because it happened in my own institution. But it was even more exponential, I think, when we started to look at how other centers were practicing. Um, and again, maybe not how we're, how we're not communicating with each other, at least through research, to try to determine what works best. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Closing us out here. You know, I read the, the title leading it. And I got to ask, where's the acronym? Blake, we need. Uh, I was under the impression that the importance of your study was directly related to having an acronym. So, A, got to ask where the acronym is, and B, follow up. Do you need some help? I got a couple ideas. If so, you know, uh, after two years of this, I, I really didn't put enough effort into the acronym. I will say, a catchy acronym is going to br- make or break your study. I think <laughs> at times, um, and so definitely, as as we seek publication coming up in the near future, I need to. I probably do need some help with that. Um, okay, so two ideas. I'm going to lead with the first, but I think the second could be the winner. So the first is Sad Mac, right? And then the second, COVID dose. Like C O V I D O S E, COVID dose. I think there's some legs on that second one. Really, really <laughs> digging the COVID dose. I don't know if I want SAD in my acronym. Um, while at times this research study made me sad. Uh, I think you want to be happy. You want to be, you, you the outcome the, was good. You'll, you want the sad parts to just wash away. They yes. just are forgotten and you get to look at the, the study and all the things that came from it. Yes. And then it'll just roll right off the tongue. Hopefully the COVID dose study. I love that. Yeah. Uh, I need to employ that. I'll, I'll acknowledge you in the manuscript. If, if so, all I need is <laughs> a shout out, not even an author list, just an acknowledgement, right? Very bottom. Yep. Um, well, Blake, thanks so much for, for taking some time, getting to highlight your research, not only for those who are here, but those who are not excited to see more about it appreciate it thanks man thanks nick this episode of pharmacy to dose is proudly sponsored by chiesi providing innovative pharmacologic therapies for over 85 years chiesi is committed to supporting the clinical pharmacist community and the patients you serve to learn more visit chiesi.pharmacytodose.com Now let's dive a little deeper into the newly released SCCM glycemic control in ICU guidelines with Judy Jacoby. We have a very, very, very special guest with us today, a senior author on the newly published Society of Critical Care Medicine Guidelines on Glycemic Control for Critically Ill Children and Adults. It is none other than Judy Jacoby, former critical care pharmacist at IU Health. What an honor. Thank you so much for taking a little bit of time to talk about these guidelines, dive into the whole process. Very excited. Nick, I'm excited to be here and and talk to you about a project that's been in the works for a long time, and it's exciting to actually see it in publication. Okay, now I have to ask... Former critical, you may be the only person who is on a lead author of a guideline in quote unquote retirement. That's is that that's a strange. Are you are you retired? (laughs) Well, I left the bedside in 2019. Uh, Workload and work life balance issues uh, were such that uh, it just seemed like the right time to retire. And my husband had retired and. Uh, although we had grand plans for travel, obviously that didn't happen for a while. Uh, but it gave me the opportunity to be incredibly professionally engaged with a project such as this and the lead uh, leadership empowerment and development program uh, that we had here at, at Congress as well. And frankly, it's a lot easier and a lot more fun to do these side 
projects when you don't have a full-time job. I absolutely believe that. And we're all luckier that, that we get to, to learn from you and, and, and get some of your knowledge and wisdom with all of this stuff. So that's amazing. Now, you mentioned that this has been kind of a long time coming. How long have these guidelines been in the works? How long have you been working on this specific update? Well, I think we started talking about doing an update uh, probably in 2018, but uh, SCCM has really committed to the guideline process, and so we had to be built into the budget, which didn't hit until 2019, and uh, so our task force, uh, uh, many of whom were on the original 2012 guideline, uh, were very familiar with each other, and although we had to learn some new and better processes, uh, we were able to uh, work fairly quickly to get them to this point uh, on on a relative basis because guidelines just take a long time. Now, out of curiosity, right, because um, you work so long on these, right, do they actually give you a heads up when the when the guidelines are published, or is it one of those where you find out like all of us do when you get the email or, or on social media or whatnot? Well, it's been a mad scramble because although we had a timeline uh, that uh, we blew past by about six months, uh, the uh, society... Uh, the American College of Critical Care Medicine has to review it, the journal has to review it, council has to review it, and uh, we were able to get all of those pieces done by the end of 2023, get it submitted to the journal and reviewed, and uh, page proofs um, madly edited in the last few weeks. So uh, major kudos to the journal staff uh, for helping us in the production end. Um, So yes, I knew it was coming because of page proofs and other edits going back and forth. And it's timely and awesome, like, okay, um, maybe a little bit behind whatever, you know, deadline per se, but you still got it out before you're presenting it, right? Because this is, we're talking on Sunday the 21st, and there's a little bit before you're going to talk about all these. It got released a day or two before, so... My guess is the ultimate finish line was let's try to get this done before Congress, true? Absolutely, <laughs> and, and thanks to the program committee for having a, opening a slot for us to be able to present it, uh, again, with very short lead time. Yeah, well, we're the, we're the real winners there. Now, um, your experience on these guidelines, the 2024 update, how was that different than your experience on the 2012 guidelines, which you were a part of as well? Yeah, so guidelines have matured a lot, and... Uh, the process that we used in 2012 was uh, very much volunteer-driven. Uh, we didn't have an official methodologist, uh, but luckily had uh, the incredible Nick Bircher, who uh, was willing to figure out uh, the Grade Pro uh, software and, and uh, do some of that uh, systemic review analysis for us. Uh, this time around, we had a methodologist and a librarian, uh, although we we were a bit uh, uh, limited by budget in terms of how many PICO questions that we could have. Uh, the, the process that we used was a lot more, uh, I think, professional, straightforward, and certainly more consistent. And and uh, you were telling me beforehand that you were lucky enough to be able to have some of 
some more authors or from panel members from that 2012 update to continue and contribute on to the 2024 update from like a continuity perspective. Oh, absolutely. And and so everybody knew each other. Most everyone did. And, and that certainly makes the whole process easier because some of the discussions were pretty lively as we were evaluating our, uh, certainly our approach to uh, the PICO question development and then evaluating the literature and deciding which direction we wanted to go uh, with our conclusions and and uh, and I think that's the best thing it's a healthy thing if everybody agreed I'd be worried that we've <laughs> missed something important you, there always has to be at least one contrarian even if it feels a hundred percent like well are we you know kind of thinking about all things because inevitably that's what you want to do with with guidelines and recs like this that and, and having that continuity it's obviously people who are passionate about that subject and many of whom had done research on the subject and you're right I always had at least it, have to have at least one contrarian uh, just to keep us on the up and up. Yeah. So talking about making things a little bit easier from a more challenging perspective, you know, the SECM moving towards the living guidelines process where it reduces the amount of PICO questions that the guidelines focus on, but it is more able to update in real time, right? And kind of adapt to how practice changes um, and not necessarily wait years. So how, how challenging was that to talk to, try to cover a topic as broad as glycemic control in the critically ill, both adults and children, and have a reduced amount of PICO questions and kind of things that you can actually answer in the document. Well, we were a little constrained by the number of PICO questions, but certainly the issues around insulin administration, safe insulin administration, uh, high-risk medication, uh, those issues are still true from the 2012 document. Uh, We didn't get a chance to really explore treatment of hypoglycemia specifically as a side topic, Uh, and uh, but again, a lot of that really is unchanged since the 2012 document. So uh, we are still relying on some of that prior information to uh, uh, be as broad and complete as we need to be. So speaking about broad and complete, right? So it's pediatric, it's uh, children and adults, these guidelines. So what challenges did having both of those patient populations unique in their own perspective, how, how, uh, what challenges did it make trying to create recommendations for both of those patient populations? Well, we, again, our panel is exceptional and, and we had some of the top pediatric, uh, uh, insulin experts uh, who had done the primary research uh, involved in our guideline, uh, some of whom are uh, like Ellie Hirschberg, one of our co-chairs, who uh, has experience both in pediatrics and adults, uh, was incredibly helpful. And uh, an incredible endocrinologist, Guillermo Umperez from Emory. And so we had people with broad knowledge. And uh, although uh, the adult people were perhaps less likely to weigh in on the pediatric issues, uh, as is appropriate, uh, uh, we had uh, uh, people, uh, in addition, like Elizabeth Farron, clinical pharmacist uh, extraordinaire who uh, knows both worlds as well. So able to help us bridge those topics. Yeah. And it's, so it sounds like you, if you had a bad, if you, if you had the wrong panel members, it would have been a challenge, but you, you had the right team members to really make sure that, that you had your bases covered Mm -hmm. from that perspective. Um, You know, many of the statements, when you look specifically 
at the recommendations themselves. Many of them are conditional recommendations. You see the word suggest as the verb in them. What would you say is the question that has the best evidence behind it in the ones that you answered in these guidelines? So the, the pediatric data was really much more clear-cut uh, as uh, they designed and, and conducted their clinical trials. They demonstrated pretty convincingly uh, that they did not improve outcome and certainly increase the risk of hypoglycemia in uh, pediatric patients with tight glycemic control, even despite the use of continuous glucose monitoring. And so that's the strongest recommendation is to um, not, uh, you know, avoid tight glycemic control in pediatrics. Um, For adults, um, the literature's evolved over the years, and so although the PICO-2 in terms of titration targets is our most important one for adults, uh, a lot of the literature uh, since the inception of the Vandenberg study in 2000 has used... uh, a number of different protocols and methodologies. The monitoring framework has been incredibly variable. And uh, so it was a lot of that uh, just variation in the literature that uh, made us uh, unable to, to make it as a strong recommendation for adults. So looking at the release of these guidelines and thinking from a I should say implementation perspective. Are there going to be big changes that need to be made in our ICUs to kind of make sure we're following these recommendations? I hope not, uh, but I suspect there could be in some settings. Uh, it's easy to put a protocol in place and uh, you put it on the shelf and nobody ever really goes back and reassesses what you're actually doing or has the data to really know if what you're doing is effective or safe. Um, And so what we're hoping with this publication is that, number one, people go back and look at their protocol. Um, We uh, suggest, uh, uh, and we went back and forth a lot as a group in terms of, do we suggest against tight glycemic control or suggest for conventional? Um, So a a target of 140 uh, to 200. And, uh, And... we ended up um, uh, su- most strongly suggesting against tight glycemic control because of the hypoglycemia concern. And that's the number one thing is we really hope places will look at their hypoglycemia rates and uh, make sure that even with a higher target, their rates are not inappropriate. I wish I could give you the metric of what that would be, but it's, it's important to look. And um, so I want people to look at their protocols, um, and I, I want them to know and be sure that they understand that glycemic, we still think glycemic control is really important. Mm-hmm. And so sugars, you know, when I started on this whole process, it wasn't uncommon for patients to run glucoses of 300 to 350 as a matter of routine. And so we can't go back to those days at all. <laughs> But um, one of our other really important points of emphasis is that the protocols ought to have uh, organized clinical decision support uh, to really take the burden away from the poor bedside nurse who has to make uh, decisions about how to titrate insulin, perhaps off of a uh, maybe inadequately supported if-then 
table on a piece of paper. And, and so that's the other thing. We're not going to recommend a specific company or a specific product by any means, but we really want people to consider using um, some sort of augmented decision-making to take that cognitive burden away from the bedside caregivers um, because, Lord, we need to protect our bedside caregivers more than ever. Well, and even, right, we think of Vandenberg, the Leuven 1, Leuven 2, however you refer to it, right, they they use their, in their words, I think it was extensively trained nurses in that, and in their most recent multi-center publication, they used a, a computer algorithm program for it, despite having, right, what you would say is some of the highest, like, high-quality trained nurses for that. So um, I like that you brought that up because that's kind of my takeaway is if even, you know, experts in the field right who sometimes can be hesitant for change in some of that perspective if they're even saying hey we got to use this then I think that's saying it all so that's a really good point and the other piece of it is as we use perhaps fewer insulin infusions expertise goes away and uh, so I liken it to saying, you know, how many people are good at titrating nitroprusside anymore? It's a very specialized uh, medication. And so in certain places, it, it, people have the expertise. And so uh, people, uh, our bedside caregivers, again, are going to be less and less comfortable titrating insulin. And that's where they're going to need more and more support. Yeah. Okay. Now, I got one big question here because as you look at the document and the blood glucose ranges. Millimoles per liter is getting the number one place and milligrams per deciliter is relegated to the parentheses. So explain what happened here. Well, if you look at author instructions uh, uh, for the journal Critical Care Medicine as a a journal with an international focus, uh, they uh, suggest the use of international units as the primary units. Uh, But uh, so we started that way and all our reviewers said, no, 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 you got to have both. And so uh, we were luckily able to go in and add both uh, throughout the document. I love that. I love that you had a chance to let us know. So not only did you try to fight it and just use milligrams for deciliters, but you all are the reason that we have both listed and we're not having to Google that <laughs> conversion every single time, which, by the way, that's how you know that there's some great pharmacists on the author list because it has the, the, the guidelines actually have the equation listed in it, which is awesome. Um, closing this out, because one of the biggest things, right, is um, – we need some research in a lot of these areas, right? And um, there's a really great table, right? And I encourage everyone to look at these guidelines, go through them. Um, but the table four, looking at you know future research topics, is there one or two that you want to highlight that you think stand out in terms of importance? Yeah, I think so. Uh, certainly, uh, some of the great observational work by Jamie Crinsley and others uh, has uh, suggested that uh, for patients who had prior really poor glycemic control uh, before they become critically ill, um, it may be appropriate to use an even higher personalized target range uh, based on their hemoglobin A1C uh, and uh, uh, hyper glycemic ratio uh, uh, to set a higher target even than what we've suggested. And uh, so that really needs to be tested prospectively as to whether there's a role for that type of personalized titration approach. 
it gets complicated to if you're running the, the, the protocol in your hospital to try and do that. Uh, but uh, we think that's a really important additional question. Uh, and whether there are other populations who might indeed benefit from tighter glycemic control uh, instead. So I think that's an important topic. Um, the other one will be, as we're all trying to make the best use of technology, the role of continuous glucose monitoring and how we can really implement that for uh, uh, certainly, again, uh, decrease in workload uh, for our bedside caregivers and uh, perhaps m earlier warning about impending hypoglycemia. So uh, we know that work's going on and, and uh, encourage more of it. Well, uh a labor of love, uh, clearly worked on these a long time and we're uh, so thankful. This is great. So, um, with us, uh, senior author, Judy Jacoby. And then of course there's a couple, you know, we'd be remiss not to shout out, you know, uh, Elizabeth Farrington, um, is on it. And then the, uh, second author, Michael Sirimatros, um, as well. And for the listeners, I've already talked to both Michael and Judy. They have agreed to come on and help us dive all into these guidelines and considerations and things. So stay tuned for that because that's going to be awesome. But Judy, I'm excited for your talk. Thanks for joining us, giving a peek to those who are not only here, but even those who couldn't make it to Phoenix. Um, always learn a lot whenever, whenever you talk or, or give any info like this. So this is a real treat. Well, thank you, Nick for uh, uh, giving me the opportunity and for finally meeting you face-to-face. -face. Uh, uh, for Long the listeners that don't know, we're from the same city. So, uh, <laughs> But I left the bedside and, and kind of missed out on meeting you at home. So we got to meet in Phoenix, but it's a good place to do it. Yep, that's exactly right. The pleasure's all mine. Take care, Judy. Thank you. Another big, big thank you to Judy Jacoby and Blake Robbins, who took time out of their busy conference days to come join us, recorded on site, which was very fun. Nothing that I've that I've done before. Um, remember, give me a follow at Pharmacy to Dose for lots of great updates throughout the conference. And again, even when the conference isn't happening, great stuff happening there. Um, 2024 Congress off to a great start. Excited to see everyone again tomorrow. And until next time. I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only and does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the critical care PRN. ACP and the Critical Care PRN disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.